bring you independent voices and civil dialogue across the political divide. And yes, to prove that we do uh, engage in civil dialogue, a uh, Republican senator is coming on this program today, and it will be a nice conversation. Hey, this is Ed Fallon. I'm your host, and we're coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. It's also known as the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Take that, Athens. Hey, if you value what we do, we need your support. Uh, visit the donations page on the Fallon Forum website, or if you run a small business or a nonprofit, consider becoming a sponsor. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Gateway also has excellent catering and floral services. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. Thanks also to Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines' East Village. Uh, Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. So let's see here. What do we got for you today, folks? Well, later in the program, we're going to be talking about how the Republican leadership in one rural Iowa county has come out against carbon dioxide pipelines in very strong language. And we want to talk about that uh, in the context of uh, politics more broadly, where Democrats stand on this. We will have a state senator, State Senator Dennis Guth, joining us to talk about that. We'll also be talking about how climate change is already impacting agriculture and creating food shortages. And some, you know, sometimes in areas that might surprise you, uh, pumpkins, rice, wheat, we know about that, lettuce, and even cranberries. Finally, for our farm and food saving, Kathy Burns and I are going to be talking about how maybe you don't want to always start your seeds under grow lights the way you always have because things are changing. We'll talk about that in the final segment of this program. Uh, first, though, I have got to share with you my Christmas story. And yes, it involves uh, stepping in a gift left behind by a dog whose owner uh, didn't seem to care enough to clean it up. You know, so Kathy and I are visiting my relatives out in Massachusetts. And on a reasonably fine day before the big storm hit, and by the way, it was nowhere near as bad out there as it was in the upper Midwest and other parts of the country. But on a fairly fine day, we took a nice walk in, uh, in the woods. And uh, I noticed that toward the end of the walk, my, there were a bunch of leaves stuck to my shoe. And I wondered what that was about. Well, looked down and it was a nice, healthy clump of dog manure. I'm going to call it manure. <laughs> the FCC prefers that term to some of the options. Anyway, uh, Got to the car, and I was mad. I was not happy. I, I was ticked off. And I'm looking at my shoe, thinking, why couldn't somebody just clean up after their dog? So I'm, I'm sitting on a wall by our car, trying to dig out the crap from every crevice in my shoe. And it was taking me a while. I was getting ticked off more and more. Went back to the car, thought I'd cleaned it off as best as I could. Got in the car. Kathy says, yeah, I can smell that. So the windows get rolled, rolled down. You know, it's 40 degrees out. You don't really want to drive around with your windows open at 40 degrees, but we must. The smell was pretty bad. We got to the grocery store about a mile away, and I realized, oh, my God, I left my wallet and cell phone back on the wall where I was sitting to clean off my shoes. 
So I drive back, and I'm really, I'm really unhappy about this. And I'm starting, I'm, I'm almost driving like a Bostonian driver. I'm so upset, you know. And I get back there, and I go down to the wall, and no cell phone, no wallet. I am, at this point, I'm really upset. So I go into the school. There's a school right by the wall. I figure maybe somebody has gone in there and delivered the wallet and, and, uh, and cell phone, hopefully. No sign of it. Went in there, talked to the receptionist. Nothing has been reported. I went back out. I don't know what to do. I get in the car, and as I get in the car, getting ready to drive back to the grocery store to pick up Kathy, I realize, you idiot. You left your phone and your wallet on the roof and drove off. So I'm driving away. I'm driving slow enough to try to, in contrast to my trip back from the grocery store to where, we, where I thought I had left my wallet and phone, I'm driving fairly slowly, and I'm looking everywhere I can. And about halfway back on a reasonably busy street, there's my wallet lying in the middle of the road. Now, most people passing by probably would have thought my wallet was trash because it is mostly at this point um, covered with duct tape, trying to keep the uh, the 20-year-old leather in place because I really like the wallet. <laughs> so I guess it helps to make your wallet look like trash in this case. Um, inside that wallet were 360 bucks. I like to do things in cash. So I got out, I picked up the wallet. I'm looking around for the cell phone, no sign. I go back and pick up Kathy, and she uh, she said, I've been trying to call you, and then I realized, aha, he must have lost his phone as well. And she is correct, I did. And so she decides to call the my phone to see what happens. Calls it once, no answer. Calls it a second time. Somebody picks it up and says, hey, did you lose your phone? And that was remarkable because... Well, we, we drove back to find this couple waiting for us. They were out for a walk, and they waited for us to get there, gave us the phone. Kathy gave them a big hug. I gave them many thanks and a copy of my book. Uh, <laughs> I said, you like to walk? I like to walk. Here's a book about walking and other things. So I got the phone back, but <laughs> I look at it, and I don't know how many times it had been run over. It was on a busy street, even busier than the street my wallet had fallen off the roof on. Uh, but it was, um, it still worked. But it started showing the green screen of death and a bunch of flickering going on. So we figured it does not have that much longer left for this world. So we get on down to a Verizon store. And yeah, I got there in time to be able to transfer the data on my phone to a new phone, which I really wish I didn't have to buy. This phone, I don't know, the phone I, the phone I destroyed was only about two or three years old. But I think about all the time and effort and money spent because I stepped in dog poop that somebody should have cleaned up. You know, it just doesn't take that long to clean up after your dog, folks. Just do it. It's not, it's not, it's not right. If you're on a road, a sidewalk, a, a walking path, just clean up after your dog. Because look at, you know, again, it takes you, what, 30 seconds? It, it, has take, it took me hours and hours to deal with what happened after I stepped in your dog's excrement. So I'd like to say that that's the lesson I learned from this is that, yeah, you ought to clean up after your dog. But, you know, as I ponder more deeply my response, I realize it's really not a matter. I mean, yeah, you should definitely clean up after your dog, but you should also not lose your cool when something relatively small. I mean, this really is a first world problem. I mean, people, 
Uh, people have people are dealing with much worse problems, even in this country, but certainly around the world, than getting a little dog poop on your shoe. I, you know, I need to remain calm. I, I, I'm actually pretty good at that usually. I'm usually pretty good at that. I got my cool. But um, I lost it in this case. And, <laughs> and the consequences were that I left my phone and wallet on top of the car. Totally forgot they were there. Jumped in. I mean, normally, it's, 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 not, it's a Prius. It's not that big of a car. You should be able to look and see it sitting right there on the roof. Well, you should never put it on the roof in the first place, eh? But um, again, if I had been functioning more calmly, more rationally, none of this would have happened. And yes, I, I mean, it's, the actual cleaning up of the dog junk on my shoe, that was more involved than, I mean, again, you, can't, you can only do so much with a little couple twigs, you know? It required washing and brushing. Yeah, so there's, there's that as well. But um, the bottom line is you really, you, in this case, I mean me, really need to learn to cool your jets. Uh, don't get upset over little stuff. And I'm reminded of a, a quote from a friend of mine who passed away a few years ago, a guy named Clark McMullen. Um, he used to work for me at the State House. He also worked on um, one, possibly both of my campaigns for higher office. I, 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 I lose track of all that sometimes. But Clark was a great guy. He was a calm guy. And he had a great quote. And his quote was, don't sweat the small stuff. That's part one. Part two of his quote was, it's almost all small stuff. Uh, that's a good lesson to live by. And so as much, again, as I'd like to blame negligent dog owners, and maybe even blame their dog, uh, it's really my bad for losing my cool, for not realizing that this is, while an inconvenience and really annoying, while you're driving to the grocery store in, in 40 degree weather with the windows of your car open, uh, it's really a small thing. And because I didn't deal with it like a small thing, it led to bigger things, bigger small things. Because again, even losing one's cell phone and one's wallet is a pretty small thing considering all the other things that can and do go wrong with people's lives all over the world. So there you go, folks. That's my Christmas story. Take it or leave it. If you leave it, I won't be offended. Hey, this is Ed Fallon. We've got to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll give you an update on CO2 pipelines, starting with a look at what Republicans in one Iowa county did to push back against these pipelines. And joining us for that conversation is an Iowa State Senator from Hancock County. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Can't play in the grass this time Cause some dog owner left poo behind No, it's not fair Especially since there's a trash can right over there. Pick up after your dog. Don't want to see smell or step on any logs. How hard can it be to pick up your dog's today? Come on, we can win this. Remove your pooch's business. Use a bag or scoop. Get rid of the dog's poop. Pick up after your dog. Don't want to see smell or step on any logs. How hard can it be? Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, 
wines, and craft beer. Gateways Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. You know, at a time when uh, some handful of big corporations control most of the media, our niche here is more important than ever. So please support what we do. Go to the Fallon Forum website, check it out. Um, become a sponsor if you can. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. If you live in Iowa, wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. Contact DavidDrakeFamilyPsychiatry.com. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. You can learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. All right, welcome back to the program, folks, and I am delighted to welcome Senator Dennis Guth to the program. He's a Republican senator from Hancock County, Iowa. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, well, thank you, Ed. It's now, always interesting to uh, get on the air and chat with people. And I'm sure we could find plenty to disagree about, but I think you and I have a similar perspective on these carbon dioxide pipelines. You, um, you're, far, you're a farmer. You're also an, an investor in ethanol, and yet you came out with a statement in the Mason City Globe Gazette recently. It was pretty strong, uh, pretty strongly worded in opposition to the pipeline that is proposed for Hancock County. Yeah, that's correct. I was actually one of the um, first round of investors over at the Lakota ethanol plant and um, have some money left in there yet and just uh, can't see any good reason for um, being invested in these carbon pipelines. And ethanol has, as a farmer, would you say ethanol has been good for you and other corn farmers? Oh, absolutely. I think ethanol is a great product. Uh, People like to talk about how wonderful solar is right now i really think ethanol is the answer to solar's problem we've got a solar collector out here in our fields and it stores its energy in the battery of a kernel of corn and what ethanol do it is doing is just tapping into that energy store and making it available in a method that's more portable and more convenient for americans i get it you're saying that the corn is a solar collector that's correct. Okay. <laughs> corn is a solar collector, and yeah. um, the leaves are solar collectors, and the kernels of corn are actually like the battery, storage battery, that we haven't been able to invent to store solar energy with. Right, and that's true of all crops, right? Well, yeah, but I think uh, some of the, the higher energy crops, like corn, uh, do a better job of storing the energy. Uh, you know, if you go out there, uh, burning your grass isn't going to get you a whole lot of power out of it. But uh, kernels yeah. of corn are very dense, about the same density as what coal would be. So let me ask you, there's a, a quote from you in this uh, 
piece you wrote for the Globe Gazette, uh, the intent of this pipeline is to capture CO2 that would normally be released during the production of ethanol, compress it and send it via pipeline to North Dakota to be buried a mile underground. There is no feasible way that this carbon could ever be recovered, close quote. Uh, you wrote that, and I, I agree with you. Um, and would you would you agree that this is they're doing this probably because they don't intend to use it for any other commercial purpose? They're going to use it, if anything, they're going to use it for enhanced oil recovery in the Bakken region. That's my suspicion. What do you think? That's certainly a possibility. I have no information beyond what the average American would have to say that that's going to happen, but it um, certainly just was reading another article today about how carbon dioxide can be used for that very purpose. So certainly yeah. could happen. And actually, I think most of the CO2 being transported by pipe now is being used for that purpose. And, of course, that's, a, that's one reason why a lot of folks concerned about climate change are opposed to the pipeline. And I know that's not where you're coming from. And for me, I, I, I share, I share, I'm concerned about that, but I also share all of your reasons. And I think one of your reasons is this would involve a lot of eminent domain, uh, taking, pub, taking private land for a non-public purpose. Right. And I think that's something that we need to really define maybe more carefully. I'm sure if this would go to court today, um, we'd have a difficult time deciding if this is a public purpose or not a public purpose. And, of course, the Iowa Utilities Board is a quasi-judicial entity. They basically serve as an arbitrator in deciding whether or not this would be an, uh, a legitimate use of eminent domain. And my concern is, despite a lot of evidence to the contrary, they determined that the Dakota Access Pipeline was indeed a public purpose. And uh, do, you, do you see these, these uh, carbon dioxide pipelines as having similarities to that, uh, that debate over the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline? Well, there's certainly a lot of things uh, in common with all pipelines. Uh, the unfortunate thing is if we check into the Iowa Code, we did add carbon dioxide pipelines to the group of uh, type of pipelines that IUB has control over back in the 1990s. So um, it's already somewhat been approved in that way. You know, I probably voted on that. That might have even been in the one bill that I floor managed uh, because, because, uh, because it's kind of a bipartisan perspective on eminent domain. That was the one bill that Republican leadership let me floor manage when I was a legislator. And I don't remember that, but it, it does, <laughs> it would not surprise me if... Um, if that had uh, somehow found its way into that debate. But so mm -hmm. does that kind of mean that right now the is going to be a tougher sell to convince the utilities board to rule against using eminent domain for this purpose? Well, I think it's going to be a tougher sell to convince the legislature to intervene in the whole process because I think without the uh, legislature intervening, um, we have no idea how the IUB is mm. going to rule on this. And I would like to see uh, the IUB be required to establish it that it is indeed a public use. And I would say that it is not a public use in the state of Iowa. It's really hard to make that case. I mean, this is a private company taking, right. taking a byproduct from a, a factory, essentially, 
um, shipping. I mean, it's not like you, you can't tap into it. <laughs> the, the CO2 pipeline right. running through your property is not going to be available for you to tap into and use that CO2 to make uh, your own homemade uh, 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 soft drinks, <laughs> for example. Yeah. Right, right. It's not like when the uh, natural gas pipeline comes sure. through town and everybody heats their home off of it or anything like that, or even like the Keystone pipeline that pumps um, oil, and that's, that's something that's uh, for private use, except that all that oil is then sold so we can drive around in our cars. Except, so, except that a lot of that oil uh, through Keystone and through Dapple is going overseas. It's being marketed to uh, right, across the globe. Right. So it, it isn't staying here in the U.S. Yeah, well, at least we'd have the opportunity to compete for it and yeah. bid on it. But we don't have much opportunity to even compete for this CO2 that would be going out to North Dakota. No. Well, and let me ask you about some other issues that have been raised, uh, I think, both by you and also by the Hancock County Republicans. Uh, you know, there's, a, there's a, a probable impact on drainage tiles. And for people who don't understand how tiling works, uh, in much of Iowa, where, you know, what used to be a very wetland, you you don't get to farm that without putting in some kind of drainage system, and that drainage system is what allows you to farm some of the richest land on the planet. Um, and, you know, those tiles, in some cases, they're what? Pattern tiling is what, 50 feet between each tile? And you cut through yeah, that. You correct. cut through that. you got some problems. <laughs> yes, I, I just finished uh, pattern tiling a field, and if they would come across my property in the wrong direction here, they would have to cut across 100 tile in order to get one mile's worth of uh, distance. So that gets to be a pretty major thing, and it has a tremendous uh, impact on the value of the land and the productivity of that land when we start messing with the uh, natural drainage or even the enhanced drainage, I guess you would call it, that we put in. And I think an important thing for a lot of listeners that don't understand the drainage that we put in an agricultural land is that that drainage can also improve the water quality of the surrounding area here because it makes sure that all the water goes through the filter of the topsoil rather than running over the top of the ground and directly into a river. Right. And especially helpful, I think, when there's some plant life that helps filter it even further before it gets into the drainage ditch and, and into the waterways. But, but yeah. You can't get away from plant life when you're out here in the <laughs> land. That's, that's right, yeah. The, cor the corn roots and the soybean roots go down at least five, six feet, and uh, yeah. there's plenty of activity, and it goes far beyond just the plant life. It's the microbial activity that increases tremendously because we put more air into the soil. Right, and, you know, that's a good point, too. One, there's, a, there's a farmer in northern Polk County. Polk County saw about 12 miles of the Dakota Access Pipeline run through it, and now Polk County is also in line for possibly a, some, a CO2 pipeline as well. And I've talked to farmers who, what, this is four or five years after the, uh, the pipeline was built. They still have compaction problems. And those, those corn plants can't get their roots down as far as they'd like to. And as a result, they, right. see, they see a definite decline in yields along, the, along the, uh, the route of that pipeline. Right, and it's not just uh, straight compaction. It's also the mixing of the soil that happens, and we get clay mixed in with some of the other loams and things like that. And we just have a totally different soil structure than we had before that pipeline came through. That's a really good point. I've seen some, some uh, photographs of that where the uh, topsoil was maybe set aside, 
uh, and then not very carefully restored to, you know, the, 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 uh, some of it went into the bottom of the trench where the clay should have been after the pipe was laid. And th- you can't fix that. You can't fix that. Well, it takes a long time. And, okay, of course, cover right. crops and things like that speed that up, but it takes a long time to repair that. Yeah. So, hey, uh, again, you're from Hancock County, but you represent, uh, I'm guessing, about six counties in north-central Iowa, correct? Uh, five, actually. And what, what are they, just so we get a, a Okay, I represent Hancock County, Wright County, Humboldt County, Franklin County, and Hamilton County, plus I get two townships out of Story County. Oh, wow, okay. So yeah, you um you have plenty of uh the, this these proposed pipelines go through several uh, parts of your district. Would go through would go through right. several parts of your district. Yeah, I was just going to mention it, and my old district included Kasuth County, and that has more uh, drainage districts in it than any other county in the state. Of course, it's a double sized sta- uh, county, but it's also one that has a lot of these uh, prairie pothole type places in it. Right. I believe, if I remember right, there's like 600 drainage districts in the county of of Kasuth. Yeah. So it's a big deal for a lot of people, and um, I know there are some who are probably supporting it. I mean, there I've heard that there are folks who have signed up who are content with the arrangement that they've been made, they've been given. But the, um, the number of people who don't want this pipeline coming through is, is still very high. And it seems like it's high enough now to, um, to generate some interest at the state house in terms of what an appropriate response might be from the legislature. Do you, um, do you see a, a, a debate likely on that? Oh, yeah, I, I, there's certainly going to be a debate. Is it going to get to the uh, floor? I don't know, but uh, mm-hmm. we're certainly going to have a debate over that. And... Uh, Going along with what you mentioned about people already signing up, some of those people that have already signed up have uh, had second thoughts then, since then. They've asked, is there any way I can get out of this once uh, I've signed on to it? Yeah. Yeah. I know that, again, from experience with the Dakota Access Pipeline, is they push really, the, the pipeline uh, agents push really, really hard. I mean, I talked to one guy down in Mahaska County, this is back in 2015, who had been I mean, one day he was harangued six different times, <laughs> and he finally got so frustrated with it, he just signed. He wasn't happy about it, uh-huh. but he just signed. It sounds like you're, you're hearing similar stories from people who sign and then have some regrets. So There has been some of that, but there's also uh, people who said they are the nicest people that money can hire also. They, they are, they are <laughs> smart enough to know that they can't be terribly irritating and get people to sign. Right. Well, yeah, they... they they did a good job there. Their, their human resources department did a good job. Uh, I do know there was one story. It was kind of a funny one. There was one pipeline agent uh, back in the, uh, in the, on the Dapple uh, situation whose previous job was a used car salesman. <laughs> so for what, that's, for what that's worth. I don't know if that's worth anything, but I thought it was funny. So um, back to one of your five counties. The Hancock County Republicans wrote a letter just last week to the Utilities Board uh, they had four objections. One was eminent domain being given to a private company. Uh, another was the uh, safety risks of a leak. Uh, and they cited the situation in a town in Mississippi a couple years ago where a CO2 pipeline ruptured and sent nearly 50 people to the hospital, and uh, some of them in, in very, very bad condition. And they're concerned that there's not anywhere near the adequate protection needed to, to, uh, to, um, to make sure that if there is a, an accident... There's going to be a you know a, a capable response from the local emergency services, 
And they're also concerned about, you know, the potential, as you've noted, for CO2 being used for other commercial uses. That won't happen if it's put into a pipeline and shipped to North Dakota. And also the impact on drainage right. tiles. They're, they're, they're four, those are their four concerns. And the one we haven't talked about is the, the issue of a potential leak and the impact on EMS. Well, what are your thoughts on that, Dennis? Well, if you have a significant amount of CO2 released into the atmosphere, the people in the surrounding area have got four minutes to live, and I'd like to see how, how many times are we going to be able to get EMTs into and out of that area in that kind of time. You know, they're not even going to find out about it in four minutes. Yeah. In my, in my sense is, too, it's not a question of whether or not a leak will happen. It's just a question of when and where. I mean, it, it's, I hate to say that, but well, I, I just think it's a matter of time. Yeah. Well, uh, but if you look at the safety record of pipelines, um, especially of CO2 pipelines, I got to admit, the CO2 pipelines have a better safety record than almost any other pipeline. Well, that's true, uh, but there's also a lot less of them. I mean, right now there's what five thousand yeah, miles. Yeah, absolutely true. <laughs> yeah, I think there's five thousand miles, which is still a lot of CO2 pipeline, and the build out, the plan for the build out is sixty five thousand miles. So mm-hmm. that's a lot. <laughs> um, that's a lot of miles. Yeah. So uh, here, let me ask you this. I mean, again, the Hancock County Republicans, I think they're the first county party in Iowa, Democrat or Republican, to file an objection with the Iowa Utilities Board. We've seen lots of boards of supervisors file such objections, lots of cities and, and, and counties. Uh, but this, I think, is the first re- first political party to do so. Do you see that catching on elsewhere? Do you think you'll, we'll see more county parties stepping forward? Uh, talking to the Central Committee Chair, he has had other counties talk to him about mm. doing a similar sort of letter. So I would imagine there will be other Central Committees that step up. Okay. So, and you're up against some pretty powerful political forces within the Republican Party. I mean, Summit Pipeline is uh, the brainchild of Bruce Rastetter, uh, who is uh, a very prominent uh, uh, financial supporter of Republican candidates. And, of course, Terry Branstead, former governor who served longer in Iowa than any governor in the U.S., uh, he's, on, he's on staff uh, in some capacity. He works with Summit in some capacity. And I believe Governor Reynolds is, is supportive of these pipelines as well. How do you um, – that's a lot of firepower on the other side of this. How do you deal with that? Um, my decision is I'm just going to do what's right and – I'm not going to do any uh, mudslinging or anything like that. This is just we want to talk about facts and stick with the facts. Fair enough. And why do you what, – what, I'm, I'm surprised. I mean, I, I'm an independent. I, I served as a Democratic legislator for a while, but I'm an independent. And I'm, I'm kind of surprised that the Democratic leadership has been mostly silent on these pipelines. I suspect it's partly because there are some labor unions that, that see jobs – in the mix, and maybe also because Jess Vilsack works at Summit. I don't know, but uh, I've been surprised that there has been so little response from leading Democrats on this issue. Yeah, and I wonder if part of that is uh, because it would be hard for them to be on the same side of an issue as some of the more popular uh, Republicans. So, you know, <laughs> Pre- present, present company included. <laughs> You know, there was an interesting uh, moment last session when there was a protest down in the rotunda uh, against the pipelines, and then there was a protest against the protest, where there was a bunch of uh, 
labor people there right. that were um, protesting this, um, the resistance to the pipeline because they wanted more jobs. Right. And I went over to speak with one of the younger fellows that was there holding a sign and said, you really think there's a shortage of jobs in Iowa right now? I mean, every place I go, people are looking for right. employees. Yeah. And he says, yeah, well, they just kind of said that I needed, you know, down at the union that I, that I come down here and hold this sign. And then I said, so do you really believe that uh, we need to sequester all this carbon, that it's really going to make a difference to our environment? And he says, uh, actually, no, I don't. So I asked him, how are you going to sleep? knowing that you've lobbied on the other side of this. And he says, probably not very good. <laughs> wow. Well, you did a great job at extracting an honest confession from the guy. That's impressive. I wonder, was he even from Iowa? Oh, yeah, he was from Iowa. Okay, well, that's unusual because most of the uh, pipeline uh, worker supporters that we encountered during the DAPL conflict were not from Iowa. In fact, uh, farmer after farmer would tell me that when they would look out there and see the uh, cars assembled to dig the pipeline across their property, nine out of ten cars were from out of state. Right. A lot of them from Texas. A lot from Texas. So I I do, uh, I want to say, you know, I I called you this morning, Dennis. We've never even spoken before, I don't think. You answered your phone right away, and you agreed to be on this program, and I very much appreciate that. I will say that I contacted four Democrats this morning, uh, two leaders, neither have gotten back to me. Um, the third one didn't get back to me either. The one who did get back to me right away also was uh, Claire Selsey, who had this to say, and I quote her, I think carbon from ethanol plants should be captured and stored on site and be used for food grade or other purposes, but to build a network of pipelines for a private company's profit is not a reasonable public policy. Also, since ethanol will probably not be used for fuel in the future, to the extent that it is now because of electric vehicles, it makes no sense to tear up the land and install pipelines. I'm guessing you agree with half of that statement. Yeah, and I'm not <laughs> sure exactly which half. Well, but, I, yeah. I, I thought the first half. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, well, I agree with that, especially when um, a lot of this is done to try and um, appease the people in California with the uh, low-carbon ethanol. Right. And their goal is to have no new... Um, internal combustion engines on the road after, I believe, 2035. I mean, you're, tr- you're trying to pursue a market that's vanishing, and that doesn't make any sense to me at all. I mean, that's, that's just plain business sense, not being political at all. Hmm. And another good conversation. Uh, Dennis, I got to run to a break. Um, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Uh, uh, folks have been talking with uh, State Senator Dennis Guth from uh, Hancock County. Dennis, thanks again. You're welcome. Have a good day, Ed. Folks, this is Ed Fallon. We've got to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll be discussing how climate is already impacting food production. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Suzette Kilo's her name, and she lived by the river Thames. Till New London redevelopment came, wielding eminent domain. To the Supreme Court went to determine just what public use meant. When the decision from Justice Stevens came down, it was certain to make homeowners frown. The case for eminent domain, the powers expanding, 
else was left standing was the city's economic plan. Sufficient public use for the taking to stand. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Remember, you can support this alternative to the shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor or a business sponsor. Check out the Fallon Forum website for details. And thanks to Architecture by Synthesis, owner Mark Klipsham says that no matter how you plan or renovate your project, please use the most energy-efficient methods and greenest, longest-lasting materials you can afford. That's Architecture by Synthesis. All right, so referencing a story in The Guardian by Gabrielle Cannon, she writes, uh, The holidays make clear how much things are starting to change here in the U.S. and around the world. One only needs to look at their holiday dinner plate for signs. And the article goes on to talk about all the different food products that are being impacted by climate change. And, uh, you know, in re with, with respect to my previous guest, um, it's not all just about CO2. Yes, plants love CO2, but climate change impacts a lot more than just the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And I want to run through a list of these, um, starting with, uh, to me, probably as a consumer, the least interesting and important crop. But again, if you're a cranberry farmer or a big fan of the group, the cranberries, this is a very, very important crop. For me, it's not a live or die situation. But in 2018, cranberry farmers had produced uh, so many cranberries that they flooded the market, and they actually had to destroy about 25% of the crop. This year, 2022, by the way, uh, heat and drought in the Northeast uh, has produced a smaller 2022 crop. Uh, now, Massachusetts is the second largest producer of cranberries in the U.S., now, you, you probably thought it was Cape Cod, right? No, it's uh, Wisconsin produces way more than Massachusetts, interestingly. But if, you're, um, if you were out in search of a can of cranberry sauce for your Christmas dinner or your Thanksgiving dinner, you might have had a harder time finding one. Uh, there is a shortfall. And connected to that, and not surprisingly, the cost of a can of cranberry sauce is up about 18% since last year. Now, I will eat a cranberry, by the way, but I'll never eat that jelly sauce, that, that jello-like sauce. There's so many better ways to eat a cranberry, but again, 
That's the most popular way, and the price tag was 18% higher than last year. Uh, now, just a little bit more about cranberries, because as I've been studying for this um, conversation, I've been learning a bit more, and it's interesting to me, and maybe it will be to you. I didn't realize cranberries are perennial. You don't plant them every year. They just they grow, and then you harvest them. And obviously, perennial crops are great. Uh, but the challenge is you can't, if you have a bad year or you have some kind of problem that comes in, you can't switch out and grow something else the following year. Now, I always thought the cranberries are grown in water. They're not, apparently. They are very water-dependent, but they're flooded at certain times, uh, like for harvesting. Uh, but the rainfall situation in recent years has been very unpredictable. And, yeah, I know that rainfall is always historically unpredictable. It's more unpredictable the heavier rainfalls are heavier, the drier periods are worse. And uh, so like many crops, you know, you know, you know, cranberries have been affected by that. And also like many crops, cranberries um, need a chilling period. They need a winter that actually is real winter. That makes a difference. If it isn't cold enough, it throws off their body clock. Uh, I got this quote from Marty Sylvia. She's an entomologist uh, with the U UMass Cranberry Station. And she says, quote, we're trying to grow cranberries and it's getting harder and climate change is not helping us. All right. A crop that matters a little bit more to me, pumpkins. Uh, I am I'm the biggest pumpkin pie maker in this household. Kathy will agree with that. Um, she's second place. <laughs> but anyway, uh, we grow a lot of pumpkins. Uh, well, this year, this past year, we grew a lot of pumpkins. We've had not great crops in the past, but this year we rocked it. We have a lot of pumpkins, and thus a lot of pumpkin pie. But apparently around the country and around, around, the, around North America, a lot of pumpkins are grown in Canada as well. Producers were uh, uh, impacted by heat and moisture uh, that was, um, you know, kind of rotting a lot of the crop. Uh, one Ontario... Pumpkin farmer said, and I quote, we had everything, too hot, too dry, too wet, all within the same month, each month. And in Texas, uh, last year in Texas, uh, this is from AgFacts, uh, pumpkin growers faced myriad challenges to produce average yields, but demand for the fall cooking and decorative staple remains high, according to the Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Service experts. So yeah, the demand is there, but the challenges of grow on growing these crops um, is, is greater. So yeah, again, not surprisingly, the cost of a pumpkin is up with prices higher than several years ago. In 2022, the cost of the average pumpkin is now $5.40. That's up from $4.83 in 2021. That's roughly a 12% increase. All right, so lettuce. And this, um, you're talking about this crop. You may really want to start growing your own lettuce because lettuce is not that hard to grow. Uh, and the cost, again, back to the Guardian story, the cost of lettuce uh, has been shot way up because of a lot of storm damage. And, I, I, you know, and not just storms. Um, there are two funguses in it, and I can't remember the name of the second one, but one of them is very familiar to me and Kathy. It's Fusarium wilt. Uh, we have uh, had, to, had to deal with Fusarium wilt and verticillium wilt uh, affecting our cabbage plants. I mean, affecting them to the point of wiping them out. And in the uh, Salinas Valley of California, big ag-producing area, of course, uh, warmer winters have been able to, have enabled that fungus to spread throughout the lettuce crop um, in, in a way that it hasn't happened before. 
One restaurant owner who was quoted in a story I found says he'd never seen lettuce prices this high, up three times what one would usually pay. Uh, and I know they're, they're ta- obviously, if you make a living this way, you're thinking about how to deal with it. And um, they're looking for new varieties that are resistant. And we have found varieties that seem to be resistant. Uh, we've also experimented with solarizing beds where we have experienced fusarium wilt. That means um, waiting for a day in the, in the 90s, whether you've got two or three days in a row, putting black plastic over your bed and just frying the heck out of it. Of course, you kill the wilt, you kill other things as well. It's too bad, but um, it's one way to get rid of wilt. Because otherwise, it's just, I mean, they're finding this commercially too. It's really hard to get rid of. And of course, lettuce also from Puerto Rico. That crop was devastated by Hurricane Fiona. Yeah, thanks, Fiona. Okay, so wine, uh, we've heard about wine being impacted by wildfires, um, and not just by the flames, I didn't know this, but also by the smoke, because smoke can cause uh, the uh, grapes to be bitter, and um, what, what the cultivators, cultivators do is just don't even bother to harvest them. They leave millions of dollars on the vine. Um so and from the uh, California Association of Wine Grape Growers, I found this interesting quote. An estimated 165,000 to 325,000 tons of California wine grapes went unharvested last year, contributing to more than 600 million in losses from wildfire and smoke. That's a big hit. And of course, when you get that kind of a big hit, you get price increases, and that affects everybody. Uh, I know you could stop drinking wine, but what would the point of living be, huh? Okay, so, uh, <laughs> uh, and now it's not just the weather and the fire and climate affecting the um, affecting uh, the wine crop, the grape crop, the wine industry. And I quote this from uh, uh, the previous source, that the supply chain crisis has affected every industry, and wine is no exception. Thanks to the rippling shortage effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, wine producers are having trouble importing the materials they need to bottle and export harvest. You know, this stuff, it's, again, it's not just about CO2 in the atmosphere. There's this rippling effect. Okay, rice, the third most cultivated grain in the world. Uh, this past year, a record amount of rice fields went unseeded due to drought conditions. And this is, again, back to California. Uh, the San Francisco Chronicle talked about how, uh, and I'll quote again, normally by September, the drive north from Sacramento and Interstate 5 showcases vast stretches of flooded rice fields on both sides. Farms bustling with tractors and workers preparing for fall rice harvest. Not this year. It is now just a wasteland. That is frightening. And not just, I mean, again, the U.S. is not the biggest rice producer. We're up there. But global, you know, global rice production, um, again, this is from a Google, sir, a Google search. Why well, do I have trouble saying the word Google? Anyway, Google, there we go. A Google search from October 22, 2022, said, quote, global production of rice is forecast to decline 2% year over year, according to USDA estimates. Again, that's 2% each year. That compounds to a really, really huge problem, especially as global population continues to rise. Also, quoting from that same search, in China, the largest rice producer and consumer, production is projected lower because of drought conditions in southern provinces. 
Similarly, dry conditions in India's northeast will trim that country's rice output. Again, that's the third most cultivated grain in the world, and um, the current situation is not good. The forecast is even worse. All right, so wheat, my favorite grain. So at least one quarter of the world's wheat production may be in jeopardy from extreme weather if the status quo persists. And if anything, the status quo is probably going to deteriorate. Uh, this is also from Grow Intelligence. Um, quote, global wheat inventories excluding China are forecast to drop in 2022-23 to the lowest level in 14 years. And again, that's complicated by the war in Ukraine. Uh, yeah, it's just, um, it, it's hard to look at this stuff and not feel greatly concerned. So the final crop I'm going to talk about is, is the crop nearest and dearest to my Irishman's heart, potatoes. Uh, some scientific projections have threatened a 26% drop in global yields of potatoes in the next six decades. That's a fairly long time span. Uh, we, Kathy and I here, uh, we, we raise potatoes. We like to have enough potatoes to get us through the winter. Last year, we did quite well. We had enough, uh, we had potatoes through the end of May. In other words, we were just a month shy of when the next potato crop came in. That's pretty good. This year, not so good. Uh, and we had, uh, almost the same number of potatoes planted as we did last year, but a horrible crop. Probably a, we probably, um, had 70% less production than we did the previous year. And we were scratching our noggins trying to figure out what went wrong. And the best we can come up with is the intense heat. And so we started brainstorming ways of dealing with the heat, um, talking with other farmers and whatnot. And uh, one idea is to, as soon as those plants get to be maybe six inches tall before they start bending, before it gets too hot, mulch them, mulch them thickly to protect those roots. And then maybe also create some kind of a shade barrier. Again, if you're growing potatoes commercially and you have hundreds of acres of potatoes, this is not going to happen. It's not going to work. Uh, maybe, or maybe, maybe you can make the mulch work, but on smaller operations, it's easier to accomplish these kind of innovations. Again, that's one argument for growing your own food or smaller operations that do direct farm-to-market uh, servicing. So, again, farming has always been and always will be a challenging way to eat for a living. Um, I, I say diversity, diversity, diversity. Always think about ways in which you can be anything but a monoculture, whether it's you're just corn and beans or whatever your, whatever your focus is, broaden it. Again, if you're a cranberry farmer, that's probably going to be tough. So, again, I, back to potatoes. Um, you know, my Irish ancestors experienced the potato famine because they were they were required pretty much because of British domination of the country to grow one food and uh, they couldn't get away with anything else they needed they had limited limited access to land uh, in the late 1800s there was a huge effort to bulldoze to evict Irish tenants uh, to bulldoze their homes uh, there are some really horrible stories about that but you know, that was mostly a political problem. I mean, yeah, there was a blight that affected the potatoes because they were growing the same thing in the same place year after year. When I lived in Ireland in the 80s and 70s, uh, you could, you, you, Irish, Irish farmer was always moving their potato crop. I remember my uncle taking it from one field 
to another every year, moving it somewhere else. And also spraying it six times a year to make sure there was no blight in it. So I think, uh, I, I, you know, that's, those kind of problems will happen unless we become more serious about uh, innovation and diversity and uh, being flexible. Anyway, we could talk more about that. We won't, but we will talk more about farming and gardening when Kathy Burns joins me for our next segment. We'll be back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Oh, the prairies, they grow small Over here, over here Oh, the prairies, they grow small And we Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Lipsham is committed to the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark says no matter how you plan or renovate your project, use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. A beautiful project will be revered, maintained, and valued, and is the best investment you can make for a future we all share. Learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures, great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant, well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Remember, you can support this alternative to the shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor, or if you own a small business or run a nonprofit, you can become a sponsor of this program. Speaking of sponsors, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Gateway also has excellent catering and floral services. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Kathy, welcome to the program. Why, thank you. <laughs> it's great uh, to be here. And I know we're, we're, we're already planting seeds in the basement to get stuff ready for spring. We are, and we've had people reach out to us here at Birds and Bees Urban Farm about, is it time to start planting? And that depends. And, you know, uh, we have a sort of a schedule that we feel the rhythm of based on the, what, 60 or so crops that we grow. <laughs> Some right. of those are multiple varieties of the same crop. And a lot of them are direct sown into the yeah. ground. But the, but yeah. for folks who are wondering, when should I start planting if you're starting seeds inside? It depends on the plant, and we'll talk about that. But we'll also talk about why, if you've been planting your seeds or seeds that you've bought or saved for 20 30, 40 years, if you just do it on the same schedule that you always used to, 
why you might want to reconsider that. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a, there's been a shift for sure. There has. And you yeah. can... Okay, well, let's start talking about when to start your seedlings. It requires a little bit of math, and it's not, it's I hate not math. hard math. I hate math. It's, there's no calculus okay. or anything <laughs> involved. So it all it, it, it's based on your growing zone. It depends where you are and when your last frost is and when you're going to be moving your plants outside. So this has to do with the growing zones that you might live in. Uh, USDA calls it the plant hardiness zone. And you check your seed packet for how soon before the last frost. You start the seeds indoors. And if you're using uh, seeds that you've saved, um, we, we can recommend uh, the seedsaver.org website, their resources tab for that information. Um, what, is, what is a plant hardiness zone? The plant hardiness zone is, according to USDA, an indicator of the extent of winter stress that plants experience due to cold temperatures. So these zones are based on average annual extreme minimum temperatures. And in the continental US, these zones are from one to 10, with one being the least hardy, in other words, uh, the coldest, and 10 being the most hardy zones. The plants need to be- Florida. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We're in the middle here in the, Iowa. There are also A and B zones, but that's sure. that's the trick. Iowa used to be zone four, and we've 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 adjusted a bit. We um, are in zone yeah. five. Yeah, and I, I think you know, it, it, to me, it's also about uh, staggering your seed starting so that you can get it all into your space because that's a big issue with us because we start about two thousand plants. Right, right. And we start a lot of plants. Late December, we start uh, our artichokes mm -hmm. and celery, and this year a new one. Peaches. Peaches, peach <laughs> we, trees. We yeah. planted about 40 uh, peach seedlings. Well, they're, not, they're just sprouts right now. Kathy got them mm -hmm. sprouted, and uh, they're doing very well. But, yeah, the artichokes, they, they take a long time, and you know, they also have to be vernalized so that they think they've gone through winter. Right. And celery is just a very slow-growing plant. And the next thing we'll start will be onions, mm -hmm. leeks. And eggplant. Well, if you are looking at your, your seed packets and saying, when should I start this? Look at the back of the packet because it tells you how many days before the last frost you should be starting your seeds indoors. And, for example, peppers, say they have a 14-day germination and you start them indoors six to eight weeks before the last frost. In Iowa, subtract, let's say, eight weeks from our last frost, which would be about May 15th, and you get about March 20th. Ma March 20th, March 20th thank yeah. you. Tomatoes, uh, again, 7 to 14-day germination period says to start See, six I, weeks before the last frost, but tomatoes grow faster once yeah, they're in they the do. ground. Yeah, they do. And I, I think they, 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 in my experience, tomatoes germinate more quickly than peppers. Right. And and, and eggplant, those are all three very similar mm -hmm. in, in, the, in terms of families. You know, peppers, eggplant, and tomatoes are related. Mm -hmm. Well, not, that depends how, how you define relations. But they... Uh, <laughs> they um, they're very different. I mean, tomatoes grow really fast. Mm -hmm. Peppers in the middle and eggplant really slower. slow. Yeah. It's really hard to get eggplant to be big enough by the time you want to plant it, unless you start it. I mean, we're going to start it in January. And the reason, again, that you should check what your hardiness zone is, they are definitely changing. Yes. Uh, a study by Yale shows that the zones are moving north in the U.S. at 13 miles per decade. That's that's a big change. So, so, so every every ten years, mm -hmm. your hardiness zone will change by thirteen miles. So, mm -hmm. so like uh, Ames is is roughly thirty miles north of here. So, in two and a half decades, mm -hmm. 
Ames will be like Des Moines is now. Well, and it's going to continue. According to some USDA maps, there's a, there's a historical map that shows the hardiness zones and Iowa in general has, is shown in zones four to five. In the projection for the future, this is projecting all the way to 2070 through 2099, it is showing Iowa's zones into six and seven. Really? Already. Wow. Even even a little bit into eight. And see that and that that gets back to a conversation we had in a previous segment about mm-hmm. about the importance of real winter. Uh, if if there are soils, soil types mm-hmm. and, and conditions and plants that are used to having a real hard freeze mm-hmm. uh, and you don't get that anymore, that's a problem. It is. I mean, and so it's something to really pay attention to. And people are saying, well, what's wrong with having a longer growing season? Yeah. Just what you said. If they yeah. don't have that uh, cold temperature uh, for the, the soil, if it's a seed that needs to, you know, when we before we planted our peach seeds, they had to be in the refrigerator for a couple of months before right. we could plant them. Yeah. If plants don't get these temperatures that they're used to, the soil, everything's changing. So check your hardiness zone. USDA has a good map. Yeah. Well, Kathy, uh, thanks so much for joining us. And folks, um, plant your seeds. Get ready. Go. Now. now. <laughs> we'll get some of them now. Some of them you can wait till March. Tomatoes, wait till March. Mm-hmm. All right. Hey, uh, thanks to our production team today of uh, Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy Burns, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks to my guest today, Senator Dennis Guth, and to uh, State Representative Claire Selsey for being the lone Democrat out of four to respond to my question about CO2 pipelines. Uh, thanks also to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Westrom Optometry, and Dr. David Drake Family Psychiatry. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Bold Iowa and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Remember, your support for this program matters a lot, so go to the Fallon Forum website to learn more about how you can make a difference. Thanks again, and we'll be back next week with another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio.